and welcome to Worst Bestsellers, where sometimes we actually read good stuff. I'm Renata. And I'm Kate. And this is our book year in review. Welcome. We're going to talk about our favorite books of 2023, which is the year that it currently is. Yes. Can you believe it? No. (laughs) So we'll start with some ground rules um, in case this is your first bests of episode. So a lot of like people's best books of the year list is only books published in that year, but not us, baby. We're rebels as anything we read in this year, no matter what year it came out. Because backlist titles are good, too. Yes. When we first started the podcast, we used to do our best and worst of the year and mention like the worst books that we read that weren't for the podcast. But we stopped doing that because that's the whole rest of the podcast and who cares. And uh, also just to let you know, we are going to be taking January off of the podcast so that maybe Kate can stop coughing if she has a full month to recover. Uh, Maybe, and also we'll just, see. Yeah, also just, you know, from the psychic damage that we incur over the year, just, you know. Yeah. Anyway, so this will be our last episode until February, at least on the main feed. If you're a Patreon patron, you might get some little treats in January, but yes. you can check out patreon.com slash worst bestsellers if you want to know more about that. Yeah, so when we come back in February, we will, of course, be coming back into Nora Roberts Appreciation Month. So you have that to look forward to. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I guess I also at the top will apologize as if you are listening to this, which you have to be because it's a podcast. uh, You may have noticed that I continue to sound terrible. I did, I swear I got better from the last couple colds that I had when we recorded, and then I got a new cold. So I'm sorry that I have been sonically off-putting for the last, like, 18 episodes at this point, and I swear I'm trying <laughs> to get better. Uh, it's hard to have a body, is the thing. It's hard to have a body. Um, which actually I'm going to use that as my transition. So Kate and I each picked a top five, but then I have, you know, when you play Mario party and then at the end, there's like the bonus stars that are like, who stepped on the most red squares? Here's a bonus star. I've, I've, uh, decided to integrate that philosophy and I'm awarding two bonus stars outside of my top five. Cause who's going to stop me? Wario? He's not here. So my bonus <laughs> Everyone was right about this award goes to the Murderbot series by Martha Wells, which people have been telling me to read for like literally years. And I've been like, yeah, no, I'm sure I'll get around to that. And then I didn't. And then this year I did. And I read the first one and I was like, oh, my God. And then I went and just immediately grabbed the other at the time, the other five. There's a seventh one that like just came out and I haven't read that one yet, but I read all, all the ones that are out and I just, I love that funky little robot murder bot. And to me, like if you have not been incessantly recommended the series, you have maybe less nerdy friends than me and that's valid life choice. But uh murder bot, like the premise is that 
well, it's a it's a bot that does murder. It's like a you know um, a security kind of droid who has hacked has hacked itself so that it doesn't have to obey its owners anymore. But for a long time, it mostly just uses its newfound freedom to like watch television secretly inside its head, and it doesn't really like want to be bothered with doing a bunch of other stuff. And then eventually, he has to like escape. Not he, it uses it, um, pronouns. Um, it's a murder bot. It escapes, it gets into like adventures. It still just wants to watch TV, which is like so relatable. And it's such a cool character. It's such cool world building. And like the way that murder bot as a narrator, just like casually reveals fucked up truths about capitalism and gender and society and then also is just like but also i literally just want to watch my shows i'm like this is the best character uh <laughs> of all time maybe some are saying some are saying this anyway so murder about tears by martha wells bonus star for everyone being right about it great job murder but yeah all right. My bonus star for this was my favorite. A different book in the series was my favorite book last year. So I'm not going to put it on my list again, but I really enjoyed it. And I still really want you to continue to read these books. Goes to For Never and Always by a friend of the show, Helena Greer. Uh, and this is the second book in the Kerrigan series. And this one focuses on the romance between Hannah and Levi. Uh, who Hannah is the cousin of one of the protagonists of the first book, Miriam. Uh, she is the manager at what was previously the Kerrigan's Christmas tree farm and is now Kerrigan's all year. Uh, and Levi Blue was her, the childhood BFF of Miriam and Hannah who fell in love with Hannah when they got older and secretly married her and then ran off to do his own shit and abandoned her and then found out that he inherited a third of a Christmas tree or a fourth of a Christmas tree farm. And at the end of the first Kerrigan's book, he reappears and this, this book is dealing with the fallout of that and his relationship with Hannah and how they're basically like, look, give me one more chance to be like your partner and if i do good then we could maybe get back together and it is a really delightful really sweet book um levi is infuriating but also in that way that you're like uh i i can't help but like this man even while i want to wring his stupid little neck covered with dumb scarves uh <laughs> it is it is a lot of fun it's very sweet and i definitely recommend it but i didn't want to put it in my official top five because i did perhaps put the first book in that series in my top five last year so that is my my bonus star valid i uh i pre-ordered that book as a supportive friend but then i haven't read it yet because i because there are so many murder bots um but i'm looking forward also, to reading it just came out like a week or ago or two weeks ago so you're yeah. not that far behind yeah anyway my other bonus star is 
uh, my bonus kidlet award uh, because I have arbitrarily chosen to highlight adult books in my top five for the podcast because uh, I got to pick the best middle grade and young adult books for the Boston Globe, which is very cool, very fun, uh, very uh, stressful. Um, but uh, so I sort of am like, those are my picks for that mostly. Um, and at the time we're recording this, I've turned them into the editor, but they haven't been published yet. But by the time this episode is up, probably they will be. So I'll link to that or uh, or whatever. But there's one kid's book that I loved and I just couldn't get it to fit in the Boston Globes list. And that book is Elf, Owl, and Doghead by M.T. Anderson. Hey, I said the title wrong. It's Elf, Dog, and Owl Head. Normally, I don't bother to fix mistakes, but this is pretty major. Okay, bye. M.T. Anderson is an author who I love. He is such a fucking little freak in the best way. And I don't... I don't understand what his deal is because every book that he writes is like a 180 completely different book from the last thing that he wrote and they're all fucking great like most authors you know i I like an as king book and i'm like okay i'm gonna pick this up it's gonna be like sort of surreal sort of weird sort of poetic but i know what i'm getting mt anderson you pick it up and you're like oh is this gonna be like nonfiction about a soviet composer is this going to be a graphic novel based on arthurian lore is this going to be like an incredibly prescient work of sci-fi uh i i don't know uh and what this one is is like a contemporary rural urban fantasy type book um because because urban fantasy because it's like basically in our real world but with magical elements but it's sort of like a a small town situation and anyway it's about uh this like young boy who it's set like during the covid pandemic so he's like oh i have to do internet school and i'm stuck with my family and i can't see my friends i can't do anything it sucks and he like walks from the woods and finds this like incredible magic dog and the book is half narrated by the magical dog who just has the most like incredible incredible point of view and it's something like again like mt anderson is just pulling this off like flawlessly like yeah sure um i'll give you magical dog pov and you'll fucking love it even though you are a cat lady um and yet and it's also like so sweet about like you know the family life and like the anxieties of covid and it's just like a really great book in a way that you're like i don't understand how any of this is working at all but it's working great because M.T. Anderson is a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's my concluding statement. M.T. Anderson is okay. a wizard. <laughs> Excellent. I love that for him. <laughs> um, and I will have to put that on my list because I do like M.T. Anderson. And I do. I would not disagree that he is a wizard. So there we are. Um, my second bonus star goes to A Guest in the House by Emily Carroll, and I am giving it a bonus star and not actually including it on my list one, because if I do this, then I have more room for other books, but also two, mm-hmm. normally, like, if I'm going to put a graphic novel on my list, I normally when I read a graphic novel, 
I kind of read it twice. I rush through it once. I mean, not like rush, rush, but because I read very quickly, I essentially like go through it at a pace that doesn't allow me to like fully appreciate the art. And then I try to like go through it again once I know the story and pay attention to the art as I go. Mm. And I just read this um, not last night, but maybe two nights ago. I read it very recently um, and I have not had time to go back through it a second time. I just kind of sped through the story and then uh, moved on with my life uh, because I have been very busy and I do want to go through it more uh, with a, a closer eye to the art because the art is fucking outrageous because it's Emily Carroll. So of course it is. Mm-hmm. But I did really enjoy it. It's I love Emily Carroll. The internet loves Emily Carroll. If you are unfamiliar with her work, she has done a couple other graphic novels, most notably Through the Woods, which is a collection of her horror short comics. Um, And you also probably know her if you are on the internet from her short horror comics that are on the internet. Um, There's a whole bunch of them. She's a very distinctive style. And I think if you looked at a piece of her art, you would be like, oh, I know exactly who that is. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was a full-length graphic novel from her one story um i it was creepy and weird and queer and like unsettling so those are all things that i love uh it is about a young woman who lives in this small town where she is a um she works in a a little supermarket And when the book starts, she has just married a gentleman who recently moved to the town and he's a widower and he has a young daughter and she's like, cool, cool, cool. And she's like excited about like having a house and like in a beautiful place and you know, being around other people because she prior to this has lived a very lonely life. Um, But also like her husband's real weird. And there's a lot of questions around how his first wife died and what happens to all of her things and what, what else is happening in this house and what he's really like and how it's this very like it's this it's almost like a kind of like modern version of the book rebecca but like also weirder and creepier if possible um but i did i super enjoyed it um i would strongly recommend it if you haven't read it yet it is a lot of fun but again like I feel like there's so much more that is there in the art that I have not really had a chance to fully experience because I was like, I got to get to the end of the story. So that is my, my bonus star recommendation is for a book that I, I will say I really only half read so far, but I can tell it fucking slaps. So you should read it. The end. I, I probably will. Even though I don't like scary don't. things, I do like oh. Carol. Oh, well, excellent. Okay. Love that for you. Mm, I read it during daylight hours. Yes. Good idea. Okay. Uh, bonus stars concluded. 
Now on to the actual official list of top five books. For me, number five is Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest by Hanif Abdurraqib, whose name you probably know because he's at this point a very famous writer and also because I've put other books of his on my tops of the year before. Um, and this is an earlier book of his and I had not gotten around to reading it because I was like, I do not know the group A Tribe Called Quest. I've never listened to any of their music. And I do really like the way that Hanif writes about music. And I've I've said that before that like in his his essays about artists that I haven't listened to, I've, I've enjoyed his writing, even if I don't know the music. But I felt like committing to an entire book that was just about one group that I didn't really know was maybe a lot. But then I decided to check it out anyway. And I was like, God damn, you did it again. Like I it's he's such a gorgeous writer and he writes so evocatively about music. And, you know, it did encourage me to go and like pull up some of their music and listen to it. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's, it's pretty good music, turns out. Um so that that was good too but he's just so good at capturing like why music matters to people and like the the personalities of these individual members of the band which obviously I don't know them at all like obviously not in real life but I also wasn't really like familiar with them as personalities and so it's a little bit like a group biography and it's a little bit of a memoir and it's a little bit of like music criticism and it's just like a stunning book. Great job, Hanif, per use. Um, excellent. Well, my number five book is also a nonfiction book by an author who you've probably heard of because I never stopped talking about him. And that would be Under the Eye of Power by Colin Dickey. If you are a frequent listener to this program, you may have heard me talk about Colin Dickey's book Ghostland about uh, roughly 900 million times. And then also uh, his book that came out during the pandemic, The Unidentified. And uh, this book is very much in the same vein as those. Ghostland is looking at America and American culture and American history through uh, ghost stories and like different versions of ghosts and things that have existed through time in different areas and examining how they reflect on American culture. Um, the Unidentified is a similar take, except it is based on cryptids and monsters. And um, Under the Eye of Power is about conspiracy theories and how conspiracy theories and um, like secret societies and uh, other things in that vein are woven into the history of American politics and why they're woven, woven into the history of American politics. And it really is just a, a fascinating dive into this topic. The thing that I always say, I always tell people that my party trick is being the co-host of Worst Bestsellers because usually oh. I, like, you know, people will be like, oh, if, like, books come up and, like, a popular, you know, if someone's like, oh, like, yeah, like, everyone's reading Colleen Hoover. Everyone TikTok's calling about, talking about Colleen Hoover. And I have no idea who that is. I can pull out, oh, my gosh. Okay, let me tell you about Colleen Hoover. 
Um, you know, back when everyone was talking about Fifty Shades of Grey, I was like, I am here for you. I have read two of the Fifty Shades of Grey books and I can answer all of your questions. Um, so knowing a lot about like popular books that are frequently in the public spotlight is a great party trick. And I thank this podcast for that. But my other mm-hmm. party trick is the weird bits of history that I have learned from these Colin Dickey books the Winchester Mystery House from Ghostland, like literally I've made friends by explaining the entire history and the ghost stories around that property and the history of that house. And more recently at a baby shower, I was able to pull out all of this information about Masons and how the Masons are woven into the history of America as a country and American politics and why the Masons are the way they are. And uh, people were very impressed with my knowledge and my knowledge came straight from Colin Dickey. So thank you, sir, uh, for pulling me into that. But it is a great book. It is full with all sorts of like little fascinating things about the history of this country and why we as Americans, especially are so prone to conspiracy theories uh, is great. And if you have read Colin Dickey stuff and you like him, I will, this is my periodic reminder that he does a lecture via Atlas Obscura once a month called Monster of the Month. Uh, It is, you need to be, it's free for Atlas Obscura members, quote unquote. So for me, a person who really only uses my Atlas Obscura membership to go to these talks, it is $10 a month. Uh, which is what it cost before it was free for members. You could just buy tickets a la carte and they were $10. So totally worth the $10. Strong recommend for listening to Colin Dickey talk about weird shit. I'll have to check that out because I do want to know facts about Masons. Yes. Uh, But I haven't read it yet. So my number four favorite book of the year was Siren Queen by Nevo. Uh, This is a fantasy historical fiction um it's set in like golden age hollywood and it's about an asian american actress a, a fictional actress named Luli way but it's sort of you know it's it's based on real life hollywood and so you know as an asian american actress her roles were limited and she went and her um her mantra was she didn't want to play any no maids, no funny talking and no fainting flowers. And so all that really left for her to play was uh, like monsters and like, you know, monstrous villains and kind of this like snake, like mer creature is like one of her biggest roles, um, which is already a cool story. Like I do like a Hollywood backstory, um, golden age story but it's also in this kind of like dark sort of magical realist type thing where there's like you know blood magic and actual sacrifices made for your stardom and if you become like a true star you like become literally a star in the sky and it's this like really atmospheric weird beautiful book but also like i love luli as a character it also gets into like the you know closeted queer golden hollywood stories that again like you know based in reality like that part 
doesn't isn't too far from the truth unlike maybe the big snake monsters and things uh it's just a really cool ass book and so if you you know like kind of scary fantasy if you do like the kind of golden age hollywood story uh just strong recommend for siren queen by nevo excellent um all right so my number four book is camp damascus by chuck tingle and you uh you may remember last year question mark uh for the podcast for halloween um we read straight me and a couple of the the regular queer guests on the program read straight by chuck chuck tingle for this podcast and talked about what worked and what didn't and how much we liked it and at the time he had announced that this book was coming out but we didn't know very much about it and i was very excited about it and now i've read it and i will tell you as you can see from it being number four on my list that it was very good and worth the hype. Um, I liked it quite a lot. It is a book about a young woman named Rose, who uh, she is like super like devout. She lives in a small town that is like where the church is the thing. And she's like super into her like Christian sect that she is a part of you know, super into God and like following the rules of her religion. And, uh, you know, so she thinks that it's totally normal that she does not want to have sex with this boy who is in her, like, she's, I think she's in her early twenties. So she's not like a teen, but she is in like a young adult church group. Um, and she's not into him, but she does like sometimes have weird thoughts about, uh her female friends but when she does have those thoughts she does then see a weird demon lady standing like in her peripheral vision with like a a melting face and and bugs everywhere and she also sometimes just vomits up live insects like you do and when she does her parents are just like ah just we gotta go gotta go get the raid because this is happening again it's treated as very normal and she's wondering how normal it actually is um and as time goes on she starts to realize that something more is going on in her town than she initially thought she meets another uh young person who also knows that something weird is going on in this town and together they start to deconstruct both their memories and the fabrications that have been put up by the church in their town to figure out like what is really going on and what it has to do with the uh, gay conversion camp conversion from gay to, to straight camp uh, called camp Damascus that is run by the church in their town. Um, I will say like very similarly to straight, like there, there are, I feel like some issues with the pacing in this book, but honestly, like I found Rose such a delightful character that I did not uh, care. It was very good. It was creepy and weird and unsettling. Uh, It, I am not, I was raised Catholic, but in a like real loosey goosey way. I don't have church trauma. 
I imagine if you do have church trauma, this might be both triggering and cathartic at the same time. Uh, but I loved it. It was great. I'm excited for his new book, Marry Your Gaze, which comes out next year. Because uh, I think he's really proven that he knows how to write this like queer horror in a way that feels very affirming and also is still like weird and unsettling in a very, very intense way. So strong recommend for this one. I think like everyone, everyone at this point has read this book and that's cool. But keep, keep, keep reading it. If you haven't, you should start. That's my pitch. I haven't, but I probably won't. Yeah. But sounds, sounds cool if you're into that. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Well, my third favorite book of the year was America the Beautiful? Question mark. One Woman in a Borrowed Prius on the Road Most Traveled by Blythe Roberson. And this is a book that is just sort of like manufactured in a lab for me to enjoy. Uh, it's got all my favorite things in it. A Prius. National Parks. A woman. What more could I want? Uh, a cat actually is what I could want. Um, So still pretty good um and it's just a you know a, a memoir slash travelogue of her deciding to visit some of the national parks that she hadn't visited before and to acquire junior ranger badges for them and this i was so stunned by because when i was a kid i really coveted junior ranger badges which if you don't know if you were a kid and you go to a national park, you can fill out a little booklet and get a, a cool ass junior ranger badge. And Blythe is like, they'll give them to adults. You just have to ask. And I was like, what? And then apparently it's so common that some places have special like adult junior edge booklets that are like harder to make the adults work for a little more. But apparently it's like totally chill and normal to be an adult and ask for a junior ranger badge. And this is making me rethink all my vacation plans for the next like 10 years gotta go get some badges baby um but i really love the sort of you know i because i've read a lot of like histories of the national parks and like i, I read a lot of books about national parks because i like them and i'm a nerd and i like that this was just like very personal and specific and it wasn't like this is every national park it was just sort of like a handful of them and it was very personal and it did also grapple with like kind of the ethics of national parks and like the colonialism of it and, you know, indigenous use of the land and like overpopulation of the parks. And like, should we even be doing this? Hence the road most traveled part of the title, but then also being like, but also they're very like beautiful and cool. And they'll give you a little badge if you ask for one. And I just like, I felt like my sensibilities are so perfectly aligned with Blythe's and sometimes it's nice to just read a book and be like, yeah, yeah. And that's how I felt reading this book. Excellent. Cool. I, I'm not a national parks girly, but I'm so glad that this person is also and exists and was able to write you this book. Cause it does, Thank it you. does really sound like it was written for you, Renata. I right? would believe it more if there was a cat in it. If, yeah. Yeah. My number three book is The Narrows by Kate Alice Marshall. Kate Alice Marshall, another author who you probably have heard me talk about endlessly on this 
podcast because I'm obsessed with her and everything she's ever written. I I shouldn't say that. I am obsessed with her and all of the supernatural thrillers she has written. Uh, I was very sad to see when I was on her, either in her newsletter or on her website or something recently, she had said that like she has a YA supernatural book coming out next year or maybe an adult supernatural book going out next year. And then that's her last supernatural book for a little while. And I was like, oh, I mean, I'm sure her regular thrillers where human is the monster are also fine. But you know me, I like a spooky book. So mm, I do know that. Uh, I am a little sad to hear that, especially because she is like sort of loosely written a series and I just really want there to be more books in this series. And I I would like I would like them to happen. So I'm sad. But in the meantime, I have read The Narrows and it is very good. Uh, so her book that came out, this I think this book came out this year. Um, it's called the narrows and it is about a teenage girl named eden who goes to the atwood school which is a prestigious boarding school and unfortunately uh, while she comes from a very well-off family they're not like a lot of the people who go to this school are like super rich and her family is kind of regular normal rich and her parents are very careless with money so like even though they're they're fine and they're they're rich like when things come up that they're not expecting they do not have savings. So unfortunately when her younger brother or her her older brother got into a lot of legal trouble this year, uh they needed to spend what was essentially her tuition for Atwood on his legal issues. So she didn't find that out until she showed up at school. And she was called to the dean's office and they basically said like, oh, hey, your parents didn't pay your tuition. So FYI, that's a problem. But we can solve all of this because if you may recall, there is there is our weird medical disaster student who is kept locked away in a secret house on campus, but who does need a roommate and her parents will pay the full tuition of anyone who will live with her. Uh, And Eden does know about this medical invalid student named Delphine because Eden was there when whatever happened to Delphine happened to her. There is behind the school a... Um, a river and there is a, a spot uh, it is a it is one of those rivers that's like super deep um, and like looks normal on the surface but like it's actually really deep and really really horrible and if you fall in there's like a 99% likelihood that you will die like immediately um, and there is a little school challenge not of course uh, endorsed by the faculty and staff to jump across this river. And when Eden and her friends were new to the school, they were too young to partake in the tradition, but they secretly did it on their own. And Eden's roommate Delphine followed them and fell into the river. And after she fell into the river, they ran back. She and her friends ran back to the school to tell the staff that this had happened but when they got there delphine was already there and she was soaking wet 
and had no memory of how she got back to the school but they were just like because they were like 12 we're like this is fucking great excellent we didn't accidentally kill (laughs) someone this is we love this so they put her into bed and ever since then she has had this insane allergy to non-purified water so she is kept in a like sealed dorm on campus there are intense security procedures that you have to go through to get into it you need to make sure that you are not bringing in any any like drop of water that has not been purified so eden agrees to become her roommate and move out of like the cool dorm that she and her friends in their senior year had planned to live in and move into this house with delphine and at first it seems weird, but then she starts talking to Delphine and she sees that she's actually like kind of cool and maybe she's into her question mark. Uh, mm. But even beyond this budding friendship and getting to know this girl who she found like really annoying when they were 12, but now thinks is maybe pretty cool. There are weird things happening in this house. There she'll go to sleep at night and to the sound of rain and we'll realize in the morning that it did not rain overnight that even though it looked like it was raining when she looked out her window the rest of the campus does not is not wet and it has not rained uh she sees things and she will wake up to like footprints like wet footprints all over her house her little dorm thing and she begins to realize that whatever happened to Delphine has not let her go. And now it is perhaps coming after her as well. As with all Kate Alice Marshall books, this book fucking slapped. It was creepy and cool. The characters were great. The relationships between all of the characters, the friendships and all the other relationships were fantastic. It felt really believable for a bunch of teen girls in their senior year realizing that they're about to part ways anyway and realizing how their relationships are fracturing uh i loved it i love a boarding school story i love a haunted boarding school story so this this ticked all my boxes and i strongly recommend it it's not my favorite book by her but it was great and i liked it and you should you should you generally should read it too. Renata, you maybe not so much. <laughs> yeah. It sounds cool though. I'm glad you I'm glad you had that for you to read. Um, for me to read, my second favorite book of the year was Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, which is another like file it under everyone was right about this book. Book. Um, it it's been it's been around. Let me double. Okay. Yeah. It came out in 2013. So I was 10 years old and you know what? Still good. Still great. Um, Robin Wall Kim Kimmerer is in a member of the Potawatomi um, tribe and this book, and she's also like a PhD botanist and this book, it's part kind of memoir, part nature writing, um part history and just sort of her exploring her her personal experience like as a as a plant scientist and the way that that has intersected with you know her her indigenous beliefs and teachings and the way that you know white scientists will just sort of reject 
native beliefs. And then if you investigate them, it turns out that actually there is like reason to it. Like one anecdote was that she had a grad student who was investing the investigating sweet grass, which is like a a grass <laughs> that is used in a lot of like um, ceremonies, and it's like an important grass, and it's hard to grow in. I want to say captivity, but that's not what you say for plants. It, it grows better wild. It's hard to like raise sweet grass intentionally. And so her grad student wanted to do a study that was like, well, what happens to sweetgrass after you harvest it correctly? And these like white scientists that had to like, she wanted to do that for the student wanted to do that. I think for her PhD thesis and the board of white scientists was kind of like, well, that's a stupid topic because obviously if you pick the plant, it will grow less stupid. And Robin Wall Kimmerer was like, well, she's like my student and like, let's do it. And it turns out that like, if you properly harvest the sweetgrass the way that traditionally you're supposed to do it, then it, it grows back even stronger than if you just like leave it be. And so like get fucked white men actually is, is kind of the subtext of this book, but it's also like, it's just the way that she reflects about like raising her two kids and like teaching them about plants and the way that she talks about like how, you know, yes, we're kind of like fucking up the ecosystem real bad, but she still has hope for the future. Like it was just really lovely. And it made me like cry and feel emotional about, um, earth. So check that out. If you want to, um, learn about plants and experience human emotions. A lot of people I know have liked that book very much, much like you said, it's a book that everybody is very into. Yeah. And I'm hopping on the bandwagon. Excellent. Love that for you. I'm hopping on the bandwagon of, I actually don't know if there's a bandwagon for this, uh, I, my second favorite book that I read this year was episode 13 by Craig DeLuey. Um, this is a mixed media horror book, which I, I love. I love. So there was this list that was going around that was like the best found footage horror novels. And I'm putting found footage in quotes because this list that was going around seemed to take basically any horror novel that involved like people making a horror movie as found footage or if it was like about people making a documentary or about like whatever i tend to think of when i hear found footage horror novel what i want is something that is made up of if not actual ephemera obviously but like you know epistolary almost like transcripts and uh, you know, video footage and voice memos and journal entries and stuff like that. Uh, and I was really maxed. A lot of the books on the list were not technically found footage in that sense. This one, which I don't think was out when this list was going around, does fall into that category. Um, it is really cool. It is about um, what has happened to this you know this there's a cable uh, there's a, a a cable 
sci-fi channel-esque cable show um, that is a ghost hunting show. And the kind of the conceit of it is that it's run by a husband and wife and the husband is a dedicated believer to the paranormal and his wife is a physicist and she does not, she is skeptic. And so they investigate these hauntings and she essentially debunks them as they happen. And he's really excited because there is this house in the middle of nowhere um, that used to belong to an organization called the Paranormal Research Foundation back in the 70s. And it was abandoned like overnight by all of the scientists and their test subjects who were living there. And no one ever heard from them again. And no one ever knows what happened. And because the place is going to be torn down soon, the company that owns it is like, yeah, you can film your TV show there. So like, they're all very stoked and they show up at this house and prepare themselves to do, it is what it, it's sort of like a prevailing, like many, many antagonists sort of situation where they really want to get proof that paranormal things exist. Some of them, because this is their life's work. Claire, the scientist is bored with this and doesn't know how to tell her husband that she doesn't want to do the TV show anymore. The husband, Matt, uh, the producers have told him that like right now the show is on the bubble. So they need to film like a really good finale in order to convince people to renew them for a second season. Um, one of the people on their team, she's not super into paranormal. She is an actress who they hired to like, just be like a techie on their crew because they were like, we need, we need essentially like more diversity. Like you're a bunch of white guys and one white woman. Like we need to put someone else into this mix. And she's like young and hot, but also a black woman. So that's like points for diversity, but she's an actress and she doesn't fucking care about ghosts. She just cares about getting a paycheck and getting home to her son. And then like paranormal things start happening. So the story is told through like transcripts of different videos and like audio recordings in the house, journal entries that all of the people on the cast have to keep as part of their, like, cause they turn them into blog posts and stuff. Stories in like their personal journals, files and things that they find from this research facility that existed in the seventies, interviews with people and it, it's just like it is tense and wild. I read this in like basically two sittings because I had to know what was going to happen. Um, it gets very cosmic horror at the end. Cosmic horror for me is really hit or miss. I will say this this was adequate, but the journey to get there was worth it, um, even <laughs> if the actual answer was kind of meh. I'm obsessed with you describing your second favorite book of the year as adequate. <laughs> the I mean I mean more that like the the like revelations of because you know when you're like reading a horror book, a lot of the bulk of the book is gonna be like building up to whatever like horrible thing is happening at the climax. And the problem with cosmic horror is that I for me personally, cosmic horror you can have like a great lead up and a great like tense awesome story and then when you get to that climax like sometimes cosmic horror stuff by ver- the definition is just not scary because it's it's literally impossible to describe mm. so 
there's like ways that you can do it well and there's ways that you do it that's fine and then there's ways that you do it badly and they did it fine um but the rest of the book was was so good that like i i truly enjoyed the act of reading it even if like the cosmic horror stuff is not my cup of tea okay but yeah i like this one a lot it was a lot of fun it was it was exactly what I kind of was looking for when I was looking for these found footage, quote unquote, horror novels. And I am happy that I found it. Okay. I'll, I'll allow it. All right. My favorite book of the year was called To Shape a Dragon's Breath by Monaquil Black Goose. And this is a book that was recommended to me by a friend of the show, my personal friend and coworker, Anna, who came in to work and she was like ranting because this was before the second Fourth Wing book came out, but when Fourth Wing was like still very popular. And she was like, I'm so mad that like Fourth Wing is so popular when, and by the way, side note, people are asking, are we going to read Fourth Wing for this podcast? And I just feel like, yeah, fucking probably. It seems like it's hitting that level where we like got to check it out. But that's for 2024. And for 2023, I'm still talking about this good book, To Shape a Dragon's Breath. Anyway, she's like, I'm so mad that Fourth, Fourth Wing is so popular when there's this other way better dragon book out there. And like, Renata, you should read this book. And it's so good, even though it has a fantasy map at the beginning. And like, don't worry about it because you don't really need to look at the map. And it's so good. And I was like... Ugh fine i trust you i'll check this book out and then i get it i flip past the fantasy map and then there's a fantasy periodic table also and i was like anna excuse me you did not mention the fantasy periodic table i'm concerned that you have like thrown me into the like way deep end of some nerd shit here and she's like oh i forgot about the fantasy periodic table like don't worry about it and i was like okay but i was like skeptical as hell after that like starting to read this because i was like i don't know and also like i'm i'm neutral on dragons i don't mind a dragon but for me a dragon's not necessarily like a huge draw in the way that you know for example our national park system is uh i'm dragon neutral Anti-fantasy map, anti-fantasy periodic table, just to have all my cards out on the table where I stand approaching this book. Um, But this book slays. It's so good. It's so innovative and clever with its world building. And uh, okay, so the premise is it's this kind of like alt history fantasy america type land that's also sort of more influenced by like um nordic countries than america ended up being in our current timeline and um and also there's dragons in it and there's this kind of like elaborate legal system where you get bonded to a dragon and then you have to go to dragon school and then you have to become like a certified dragon owner and And then you're like a certified dragon, like kind of like a driver's license, but like way more fucking elaborate because it's dragon. And because of colonialism, most of the indigenous people don't have dragons anymore because they like got sort of driven west and then like taken. And so like a lot of white people will like go to a hatchery and get a dragon egg and it's like a thing. But um, our main character is named Anacus and 
she her she lives on an island and a, a dragon comes to the island and lays an egg and then flies off and like leaves the egg and her people have like a ceremony that they do or when the, the egg is about to hatch everybody goes and like stands around the egg and it chooses its writer and this dragon chooses Anakus and she's like sick dragon and then the white people are like, um, excuse me, you have an unlicensed dragon? You have to come to dragon school, actually. And she's like, um, I don't really want to. And they're like, if you don't, like, you like, we put unlicensed dragons to death, so you've got to come. And she's like, fine, I guess. And so she goes to, like, dragon boarding school. And there aren't even that many girls there. There's only one other indigenous person there. And he's someone who had been like a servant in a household and then accidentally bonded with a dragon. And so he's been like raised among white culture anyway. So she's like the only indigenous person there who's like raised in the indigenous ways. And so she is like really not fitting in at school, but it's just a sort of slightly different take on that kind of narrative where she is really like, cause she's still able to like go home and visit and she's still like rooted in her beliefs. And she is so I'm gonna say plucky like (laughs) she and she's so cool she's such a fucking cool character I just am obsessed with her I love her and she is out here like learning things making new friends there's a boy who's sort of um coded as autistic although they don't use that word for him and she like really clicks with him because he will like explain these social customs to her in the way that like he understands them. And she's like, yes, I understand. That does seem to be what they're doing here. Huh? And like, they have a really cool friendship. Um, She's queer and sort of dabbling in a light polyamorous love triangle. That's very cool. The dragons are cool. There's a twist about the way that the dragon magic works. That's fucking cool as hell. I just, I just loved it. And like, for me, the cards were really stacked against this book in the beginning in terms of like me enjoying it. And then it just like overcome every obstacle that I, that like my personal taste had laid down and just like flew over it like a fucking cool ass dragon. I was like, Oh my God, like I love it. Um, So like a sequel is coming. I can't wait. So stoked. Um, And I'm just going to read a little bit to you. Um, and this is from near the beginning of the book, but after Anakus has arrived at Dragon School and she's talking to her roommate, Marta. Um, so Marta says, would-be dragoneers who don't prove themselves equal to the task can't be allowed free custody of their dragons, of course. Dragons that are tame can sometimes be kept in wild animal collections and used for breeding, but most usually they're destroyed. Destroyed? Because a dragoneer isn't proficient enough in skill to craft? Even if the dragon is tame, I asked appalled at the notion. Kasakwa, which is her dragon's name, whined, alarmed at my sudden distress. I must have made a face because Marta quickly said, Oh, Anakus, please don't think that it happens very often. When it must happen, it's considered a terrible shame and a great waste. Besides, I'm very sure that you'll prove equal to skill to craft, especially if you're such a quick study at tellcraft, which are their fantasy words for magic shit. You've nothing at all to be to worry about, I'm sure. She was entirely wrong about that. I had quite a lot to worry about. 
I understood now why that Einerson fellow from the ministry had asked me how I'd come to possess Kasakwa. The anguish treated dragons as if they were dogs. Dragons are sacred to my people, I said, trying to understand how she could so casually talk of dragons being put to death. Being chosen by one is an incomparable honor that changes one's life forever. The word for dragoneer in Masquisit is Nampeshiswisit. It means person who belongs to a dragon, just like Nakwisit means person who belongs to Nakwipog, and Masquisit means person who belongs to the Masquipog. I chose poorly, making myself read this paragraph. I don't think that dragoneer means the same thing at all from what I've seen. I don't think that your people understand dragons. Marta looked stricken for a moment, and her dragon rose to his feet. Then she took a breath and seemed to compose herself. After a moment, her dragon lay back down, and she spoke. Well, I can certainly see why Frau Kuiper solicited my assistance in making you aware of civilized customs, as it's obvious that you have little experience with polite society. Primitive superstition and folklore aside, dragons are beasts, as much as dogs or horses are. I very dearly love Magnus, and I'm sure that every dragoneer would say the same of their dragon, but I hold no particular illusions about him. He's an animal of a witscrafty nature. If he weren't bonded with me or some other dragoneer of firm resolve, he would be vicious and dangerous. There are still truly wild dragons in the remote mountains of Tykesland and Vaskosland, and they still menace shepherds and even kill and eat mountaineers and explorers from time to time. It's my understanding that there are wild dragons in the interior of Marcusland as well, on the western and northern frontiers, and that there is much a menace to settlers as wolves and great cats are. The dragons and the wolves and great cats were all here long before people were. My people have always endeavored to be good neighbors to them, and if your people find them menacing, then I can only presume that you haven't taken the same care, I said. My grandmother didn't think there was anything worth knowing that I could learn by coming here, and I'm beginning to wonder if she wasn't right. I'll stop there, but it just, like, it's a sleigh. Anyway, that's To Shape a Dragon's Bath by Monaco Black Goose. Uh, I still haven't read Fourth Wing, but I would bet $27 minimum that this book is better than Fourth Wing, because it's so good. Yeah, I have a feeling we will be reading Fourth Wing in the near future. So you'll get to know for sure whether or not you can keep that $27. I have a feeling you will be able to keep it. Fingers crossed. So my number one book of the year is by another favorite author of mine who has appeared on my list many, many times. And who I feel like, I feel like... I don't know. This this may be like totally off base, but I feel like there were a lot of folks who were kind of sleeping on T. Kingfisher, um, Ursula Vernon's pen name, and she fucking slaps. I love her horror books in particular, as as you all know. I am not a fantasy girly, um, but I do love I love her books. I love her horror books in particular, but this year she did win the Hugo Award for her fantasy novel, Nettle and Bone, and I feel like now more people are understanding that she's, like, fucking great. I love her. She's had a horror novel come out, like, every year for the past several years, 
every single one of them has been my favorite book of the year that year that it came out and this one is no different it is a little it is a little bit different than the other ones in that previously like her last three books that came out were almost like remixes of classic horror stories or at least took their inspiration from classic horror stories and this one is more of a like whole cloth invention um but it still is so good did i say the title is a house with good bones i'm not sure that you did okay the title of this book is a house with good bones it is this like weird twisty southern gothic but also body horror but also like almost like celtic fable type fae is very good is about a young woman named sam who is a bug scientist and specifically like she works on like archaeological sites and looks at bugs on digs and that's like her whole jam and she hasn't been home in a while and she talked to her brother recently who has been like uh something weird is going on with mom she and her brother both live very far away from where they grew up where her mother is currently living in the house that used to be their very strict very overbearing grandmothers and when sam's dig that she was supposed to be on is canceled for funding reasons and put on hold indefinitely she decides that this is a she's already subletted her apartment for the length that she was supposed to be on this job so she decides this is a great time to go visit her mother and check up on her and make sure everything's okay and she is shocked when she arrives because while she and her mother and her brother moved into her grandmother's house after her grandmother's death and like changed it up quite a bit the second she walks into the house to visit her mother it's like her grandmother never left they had previously like painted all of the walls like bright colors and now they're all back to like bone white there previously had been like all this like eclectic art and things on the walls and it's all been replaced with like family photos and the like very austere southern art that had been in there previously including this like giant painting of a confederate soldier uh getting married that used to hang over the fireplace that her and her mother used to make fun of so much and when she gets there like it's back in its regular place so she can tell something's wrong her mom's being really weird about it and very at first she thinks that she is maybe suffering from some kind of dementia because she is talking to someone else all the time when she thinks that Sam can't hear. But those of us who realize that we are in a horror movie do of course know that she is talking to the spirit of her dead mother, Sam's grandmother, who is still within the house and whose past is a lot more checkered than she would want anyone to think. And we go through the story with Sam as she starts to uncover things about her family, her great-grandfather, his connections to Aleister Crowley, why her grandmother is so obsessed with the Rose Garden that, that she meticulously maintained when she was alive, and 
what has happened that has driven all of the bugs away from the yard and what's going on with the vultures that are circling the house and sitting on the mailbox and on the roof while all of this is happening. And it it is again, like a thing where something happens and you're like, Oh, like that's it. They figured out who the bad guy is and how to stop it. And then you realize that there's still like, three hours of book left and you're like oh no this goes further than we thought it did as with all of t kingfisher's books her sam's voice is so great it's so funny it's so relatable it's very distinct she's a great character she's got a great sense of humor the prose itself has a great sense of humor while also being like very foreboding and upsetting and uh like creepy there's elements of body horror there as i said like are elements of tying it back in to like old school magic and actual historical figures and like witchcraft and folklore and just weird shit and it's great it's very fun and funny and scary and cool and I really liked it, and it's it it was it was great. I listened to it twice this year because it was so good, and I enjoyed it so much. And I am excited there is to read whatever she has coming out next in the spooky realm. And I forgot about the part where we read things. <laughs> cool. Well, that sounds real spooky. And uh, I know, I know you are a true T. Kingfisher fan, even pre Hugo. You know, you you got it on the ground floor of T. I Kingfisher. I just, I want, I just want, I just want the building filled up. I want everyone on the bandwagon. I want everyone to read these books and talk about how great they are. I made Kale listen to one in the car. Actually, I made Kale listen to one. To, I made Kale listen to What Moves the Dead last summer in the pool, uh, and they really liked it. Unsurprisingly, because it is about fungus and body horror. And then mm. I made them listen to The Hollow Places when we were driving back from New Jersey in September. All right, you are doing the street team work. You're you're out here. You're dragging people onto the bandwagon. Yes, that's all I want. You're doing it. Uh, all right. Well, those are those are them. Those are our favorite books of the year. Um, we hope that you enjoyed hearing about them. If you didn't, uh, don't tell us because it hurts our feelings. Thanks. Uh, we will be back in not two weeks. In some time. In some amount of time. We'll be back in we'll February. Be back. Yeah. I don't know how many weeks that is. Some amount of no, time. I don't either. Uh, until then, uh, we hope you have a great holiday season, a happy new year, a safe new year. We hope you read some good books or watch some good TV. There's a lot of really good TV also. Let's not forget about that. Um, <laughs> we didn't we didn't put our little ending in here, some kind of a drift. Um, we're on social media, most places at worst bestsellers spell normally. We're still on Twitter at Worst Bestseller with no S because of reasons of space limits. That's the truth. There was a character limit. I'm so sorry. That's the only reason why we don't have the S on there. I hope this hasn't shattered your worldview too much. 
you can find us on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, all of the podcast places. You know what they are. And if you do find us on any of those places, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. When you rate and review, it moves us up on the charts and makes it easier for new people to find us. And if you do rate and review, because this is our positive episode, we'll just be really happy. We'll be really happy and we'll really appreciate you taking time out of your day to make our days a little better. But we'll also never know about it because we never read the reviews. Yeah. But we'll know in our hearts. Sometimes we do accidentally. And if we like happen to glance at it and the most recent one is like a nice one, that will make me really happy uh, to, to have seen. Uh, we have a Patreon available at patreon.com slash worst bestsellers and as Renata said at the top of the episode we will be probably dropping some bonus episodes in January so if you really miss us and you can't go a month without hearing our voices first of all I'm so sorry because I've sounded like a monster for the past month and a half (laughs) Um, but you can head over to Patreon and we'll hopefully probably maybe be posting some bonus episodes over the course of January to tide you over until new content in February. And that is once again, patreon.com slash worst bestsellers. You put a lot of qualifiers in there when we already have like a time scheduled to record a bonus episode coming up. Well, I know, but you never know. That's true. Uh, I'm online at Renata Snacks. I am online at 14 across. And thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. Thanks for, thanks for being with us. And, and we love you. Bye. Bye. like looked down i was like that's not plugged in uh everything's fine we're professional podcasters we are it's great